This episode is brought to you by Wellforce, offering business consulting and IT solutions for the hybrid workforce. Online at wellforce.ai. Thank you for listening to the Girls Who Do Stuff podcast. Visit girlswhodostuff.com. You probably shouldn't Google that. Welcome to the Girls Who Do Stuff podcast. I am Sarah Madras. I am Jenny Midgley. And this is the show where you come as you are with the courage to speak up and tell a better story. Good job. Thanks. All right. It's been a while. It has been a while. That's <laughs> So we go back and forth with this that I was doing it for so long. And I just, I was like a natural like right. flow of things. And right. now. And last episode you were like, wait a minute. Am I supposed to be doing this every time? Are we supposed to be trading? Are we supposed to share? You must go back to your whole thing of we don't have to share in our household. That is true. We do not have to share in our household. That is a rule. If it's yours and or you are actively using it, you are right. not required to share. Because can you imagine as an adult, somebody coming up to you and being like, it's uh, my turn to use your phone. Yes, it happens to me all the time because I have children. If another adult came up to you and said, mm, it's my turn, that's my. It's going to be my phone now. You'd be like, fuck. I think a good example would be like your car. Like right, just right, be, right. My turn. Like, my no, that's, turn. A, that's a carjacking that's is what not, that is. <laughs> that's not how any of this works. <laughs> so, oh, I love it. I love right. it. Oh, anyway, uh, we digress. So today on our show, um, we have a lovely human being. All right. So let me give you a little backstory. I was perusing my news app as I typically do get my skimming my news app. And I just go and I read through articles and I found this woman, Leah Olson. She had written an article about her experience in an interracially adopted family and all of these things. And her story was really resonating mm -hmm. with me as well as she was from the same town. She went to the same college. It was like a, and a I was kindred like, spirit. it was a kindred spirit. So I did, of course, the first thing that any of us would do in this day and age. And I stock booked her yep. and I went right onto Facebook and I saw that we had a mutual friend and I reached out to said mutual friend and said, Hey, do you really know this person or is it right. just an acquaintance or can you give us an introduction? Mm -hmm. And then here we are. Awesome. So, yes, that's how that happened. That's beautiful. Serendipitous. And then she and I got on a Zoom call and we were chatting. We hit it off and then we talked about all the different possibilities for the show. She'd been writing on Medium mm -hmm. and that Medium article got picked up by HuffPost and then that went nice. Bigger. Look at so. you, Leah. What? <laughs> I write for Medium wow. and I'm on HuffPost. What? I hope that's on your website. And we're talking about her like she's not here. She's not, but she's here on the screen with us. She's just not right. in studio. That is true. So she's not I mean, in studio. What, what does here mean in this, this day and age? Exactly. <laughs> Truth. We're, yeah. Hi. I really am here. I'm out in California. <laughs> <laughs> but like I said, these days, I don't even really think anymore about where people are when I'm talking to them. Because <laughs> yep. Stuff on Zoom. It still feels a little strange to me to say I'm a writer because it's not my day job, so to speak. Mm -hmm. It's my extremely early morning and sometimes late at night hobby. But it's something that I've been doing a lot lately. It's something I've always had an interest in. Just so you get a little more sense of who I am. By day, I am an attorney. I've been writing a lot lately over the past few years, just to process a lot of stuff going on in my life, an organization that operates charter elementary schools based nationwide. So I just, I've always worked remotely before everyone was legally mandated. She was doing <laughs> it before it was cool. Before it was cool. I was on Zoom before anyone else knew that what that was. It was such a, I've been using Zoom for since 2016 or whatever. Yeah. And everybody, yeah. what's this Zoom? Yeah. And I'm like, 
<laughs> For once, now, I'm like, not the one living under a rock. Exactly. I was like, I had a brief two-day window where I could train colleagues and then they all figured out <laughs> how to get way more. Were you like, wait, I'm the cool kid, right? <laughs> right? Yeah, now five-year-olds are using it. Yes. Than <laughs> um, and we're no longer cool. <laughs> So that's what I that's what I do during the day. I've done I've worked in my role for a long time. And then I'm married, I have my two young kids. But writing had like I said, it had always been an interest of mine. My parents have saved stories that I wrote when I was like 10 years old in this file that's for a while it was very embarrassing. Now it's I'm accepting it and it's cute. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was a journalism major in college. So I always had this interest, but really it became part of my life more over the past few years. And then what Jenny was alluding to, the 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 content that I was writing about on Medium and then the one that got picked up by HuffPost was pretty, I guess I could say heavier. It, the topics were pretty sensitive because they had to do with race and to a certain extent adoption, which is also part of my story. And we can get into as much of that as you want. But as, just as background, I am biracial, half black, half white. That's about the extent to which I know right now because I was adopted at birth in a totally closed adoption, meaning the file is like the very limited file, it's anonymous. And that's all I was ever legally meant to know. So I don't have much information on either side of my biological family, but I am biracial. And my parents are white. Obviously, I'm talking about the ones who adopted me, but they're white. And then my family is interracial, meaning all of my siblings who were also all adopted are of different races. And so that's what I've been exploring a lot. And as we all know, the past year and a half now has brought race to the forefront of the national dialogue. But I know for some people, it's always been there. And for some people, this was the first time they were really taking a hard look. And then there's a lot of people who fall in between. And that's where I was, the in-between. But it really became something that I was trying to work through over the past year. And that's when I started writing. But as we can talk about, it's not easy to talk about. And it's not easy to write about. And Jerry's out as to which one's harder. But <laughs> writing, I guess the benefit is that you have time to revise and process mm -hmm. by yourself before releasing it into the world. But the trade-off is that you then can't exactly have a back and forth. And so things get lost in translation, things get interpreted differently in a way that you might not never have seen before. And so you're putting a position out there or, and your story out there for other people to read with, with whatever they're bringing to the table. And and it is a sensitive space, but that doesn't mean it's not important to talk about. So, right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think the hardest things to talk about are the most important things to talk about. Yeah. yeah. And we have a responsibility as leaders to have those conversations. Yeah. Absolutely. Which is why I appreciate your show, not to get cheesy, but when Jenny reached out and said it was serendipitous that we connected, but I think a big benefit for me was that I was introduced to your show and your every episode I've listened to has brought some of the topics are, are lighter than others, but they're all a sense of theme of let's just talk about this. Mm -hmm. yep. <laughs> even, if, even if there's some delicate moments, even if there's things that not everyone would necessarily agree with, even if there's different perspectives, it's real life stuff. And if it's someone's real life, I, I feel like ultimately there's more good that can come out of talking about it than keeping it buried. So yes. read. Yes. Say that Preach. again for the people in the back. There is more good <laughs> to come out of having the conversation than just not right yes 
Well, and because shame lives and breeds in silence. Yep. And so when we don't talk about things, we're allowing shame to permeate all Mm -hmm. over things. Mm -hmm. And the second we talk about it, it's like a vampire. When they are exposed to the light, then they... They have a daylight ring. Unless they have a daylight ring, true. Or the Cullen family thing, and they sparkle in the sunlight. They sparkle. Lame. (laughs) Hashtag Team Damon. Salvatore Brothers. I agree. Sorry, we're not going to go down that rabbit hole right now. I'm like, because then we could go into anyway. Don't do it. We're not going to do it. So I think it's really interesting. And what spoke to me on the the serendipitous parts, of course, like the adoption that it was like the we grew up in the same space. So there was an understanding, right, of what it is like to grow up in Metro DC. Mm-hmm. There's an understanding of what that community is. There's an understanding of it because it, it's different. Montgomery County is like, inform us. it's like a different universe. It's because you're so close to the seat of government, right? Like the vibe is completely, everything is like circling around what's happening in the federal government. So everybody plays like the, who are you connected to game? But then it takes on a different level when you're talking about diplomats and dignitaries and people who work. What's your GS level? What's your, are you at NIH? Are you at, you know, the Pentagon? Are you like it? And it's a normal part of conversation that you don't realize that's abnormal until you walk away and you're no longer in that ecosystem. That's- and then when you're talking about it, so then we'll add in the layers of what? Oh, I was just going to say, that sounds terrible. Yes. <laughs> like when you find yourself trapped in a conversation about politics when you're like at McDonald's and you're yeah. like, no, I was just, how about we do weather? Do we do weather? <laughs> to have that be like the constant when, state. When you're there, you don't know you're trapped because that's just what, it's like life. It is. <laughs> it is. No, it's total. That is life, That's right? a great point, Leah. When you're there, you don't know you're <laughs> no. trapped. Yeah, that reminds me of what it was like when I was like a teenager and really into church. And I just always talked about church mm-hmm. and yes. other people didn't want to talk about yes. church. Right. And I didn't know that we didn't talk about church. <laughs> yes. you know, so I'm just always kind of like, yeah, that's great. Did you have a good weekend? Yeah, church. Yeah. Like, that's not what anybody was talking about. Right. Let's talk about that for a second because it's like when you and when you go back, Leah, right? I know that you experience this. When we go back to that area. We pay attention to when Congress is in session and not in session because that means that traffic will be lighter when they're not in session. <laughs> I'm like, Leah, can you confirm or deny that? Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, it, it, yeah, it just you're so attached to the workings of basically federal, state and local government mm-hmm. that it just you don't even always realize all the ways that it affects your daily life, your planning and definitely your conversations. Mm-hmm. Everyone's just mentality, I think. My dad's career was in politics. He wasn't a politician. He's a businessman, but his uh, business was heavily tied up in politics. I wouldn't maybe say annoyed, but he's very surprised that I'm out here in California. A little more detached, actually a lot more detached than I think he ever envisioned one of his own children being. I don't know if there's a right or wrong way to, to live, but I do know that that sort of complete focus on politics and what's going mm-hmm. on with you know, the government and how... With every conversation, how can we fit this into what's going on in the national politics? Mm-hmm. It's just not as, it doesn't come as naturally when you're not right there in the epicenter of it. And so over the past 10 years that I've lived in out here, it's away from it. It's been just less and less a part of my daily life while my family and friends who remain in DC are still very much in the mix. Mm-hmm. And it just, it drives a little bit of a wedge, but that I think that's the... I guess, beauty or reality of this country is that you are a product of your surroundings in a lot of ways. Right. And in DC, your surroundings include politics. So yeah. national politics. Mm-hmm. 
And that's not to say that doesn't happen in other places, but it's very present in that area. Because we live in in the seat of government for the state of North Carolina, and and it's not even like we <laughs> we live in the right next to this. We live in a suburb of the state capital, and it's no. It's a totally different... Forget it's a state capital. Exactly. I always think it's Charlotte. And then I'm like, no, it's Raleigh. That's right. There's that big building downtown. Right. Yeah. Like, it's that's literally like everybody. Oh that, Joe is just every man for, in the state of North Carolina. Like, it's... Lit, yeah. But let's... So let's talk about that person and environment being a product of our environment. So you were adopted at birth... So let's talk about that, like, person and environment and experience growing up. And you can tell us about your family of origin. So how many siblings are there? So I grew up with four brothers and a sister and all adopted. My four brothers are all black and my sister's white. And then there's me biracial. Now I am. <laughs> it's like, you know, I'm, there's I'm like, like the chocolate and the vanilla and you're like the swirl. I are you in that for the birth order too? That would be no, cool. so, um, uh. birth order. I was my parents' first child, and I like to uh, brag about that. I obviously did a really good job because yes. they went on to adopt five more. <laughs> um, I unfortunately have no memory of being the only child because my sister was adopted when I was two. My whole life, I just felt like I was growing up with a lot of other kids. I do have an older brother, which doesn't make sense when you think about the way things are normally done. But he was adopted into our family when he was thirteen and I was nine. Mm-hmm. So came to us a bit later in his life, but as uncommon as that is, it, it never really felt odd in our family because we, first of all, there's a lot of kids anyway. So we were used to other so, kids. Right. You're like, more. what's one more? Like you're used to, it's an um, old hat. You're like, okay. Right. <laughs> yeah. And he was great. He had been a longtime family friend too. We had known him and he had been present at family stuff for a long mm-hmm. time. And he came to live with us when he was 13. And like I said, I was nine and it was about the coolest thing ever that could happen to a nine-year-old because I was used to being the oldest. And then all of a sudden I didn't have to be. <laughs> so I was like, oh, hey, someone else to take all the responsibility and the blame. And so, yeah, so technically, I guess while I was my parents' first child, I'm actually the second oldest in our family. Gotcha. Um, and then my younger sister, and then we have three younger brothers as well. So that's the mix. And I, I spent a few years living in suburban Massachusetts, which I don't remember because I was really young. So we spent most of the years living in a suburb outside of D.C., technically in Maryland. Yeah. And because in my mind right now, all, all I'm hearing is the show This Is Us. And I'm like, was you, do you watch that show at all? I don't, but oh, I know I'm like, really <laughs> <in> the minority. <laughs> okay, so essentially in the last few episodes, Randall's been talking about his experience of uh, growing yes, up. In, I, mm, and, mm-hmm. it's, and so I was like, oh my gosh, I wonder if there's shared experiences there. So for a framework, and it's not, I can say, speaking from my own personal experience, it's the added layers of the transracial adoptions are, I'm not going to minimize, I'm not going to dismiss that. But what I'm going to say is that what they describe in these episodes is he's going to these group sessions about dealing with being in an interracially adopted family. And made the leader talks about ghost kingdoms, where the fantasy family that you create in your mind which is very natural to do as an adoptee, and that's your ghost kingdom. 
and it's a safe space for you to imagine what your biological parents are feeling like and, and look like, like and, and so what it would feel like to have that. Yeah. For him, his ghost kingdom, he only had like two other models. people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Two other people in his life. And it was the weatherman who was an African-American weatherman and then the librarian. Mm-hmm. And so that is the people that were in his ghost kingdom of this was mom and this is dad. Mm-hmm. Cause that's all every, he didn't have any right. other models around him of African-American Adults. But people who look like him. Yes, correct. Because that's, and is, yes. did you find that to be like the biggest, I, there's no word I don't think that encompasses this. It's not struggle. It's not challenge. It's not, it's that feeling that no, you don't look like anyone. Yeah. Oh, okay. So our, now we're going, I feel like we're, we're going a layer. <laughs> so I imagine I'm just going to open a whole bunch of not cans of worms per se, but just, I'm just going to go in. I did not have a lot of black or African-American or even brown skinned role models growing up by but that was more by choice which sounds harsh but i'll try to explain so my parents were extremely open about race it was like we couldn't go a day in our house without having a conversation about race like it was half let's talk about racism and the history of racism in the country and prejudice and and all that just to be honest and forthright with all of the kids and then it was half, be proud of your heritage. Let's go find you cultural connections. And my brothers, although they're each on their own identity journey and it's changed and fluid, but they, I think, latched on more. And they were always very interested in learning more about their heritage and finding role models and feeling more connected to all different cultures. And for me, I was so resistant. And I think I've, I've thought a lot about this. In the article I wrote in HuffPost, it got a little bit dicey and sensitive because I tried to name some societal factors of why that might have been the case. In the article, I think I, I framed it and talked a lot about how I tried to pretend I was white, which is not in an, actually an entirely accurate way to say it because I never actually tried to get others to believe I was like a white person. I know you guys can't see me, the, the listeners can't see me, but I don't look white. Uh, some people don't exactly know what I am, but I'm brown skinned and my hair is naturally very curly. And so I never tried to like literally pass as white, but I was very much attracted to fitting squarely in with like white culture, white friends, white role models, seeking them out. And it wasn't because I was opposed to, it it sounds like I had plenty of people in the comments on HuffPost call me racist. What was going on when I really think about this is, was less about (laughs) society, although I'm sure there was elements of that wanting to be part of the dominant culture or whatever, but it was more about just this desperation to feel like I belonged in the family that I had because Mm -hmm. I loved so much. So these ghost families, it's interesting that you were saying that I got to watch this show, but some of my siblings did do that and they had fun with it even. And they treated it as just another piece of who they were. We have these other families somewhere. We don't know them, but isn't it cool to imagine? For me, I was like, I don't even want to think about that because it it's too weird. It's too different. It's too scary. And it's irrelevant because it's a closed adoption I'm never going to know. So what I want to do instead is focus on the family that I do have. And I love my family. I love my parents. I have everything I want in terms of family. So how can I most convince myself and convince everyone else that I fit right in? And it started with those two key, the biggest role models of all. My parents were white. And even though they didn't want to pretend I was, I wanted everyone to think... Mm-hmm. A similar, yeah, like she's their daughter. 
who cares that she doesn't really look like them? She's just like them. Mm -hmm. She is attached to them. And I think that sort of mentality started from when I was like a very, very young child and just continued to the point where when I was old enough to make decisions, I was still gravitated toward what I had started with from day one as the most familiar, which was two white parents (laughs) in a mostly white neighborhood when we were living in Massachusetts. And that's just the way it was. And it was all coming from a place I feel like of like, longing for acceptance and belonging and trying to make sense of something that sounded scary if I thought too hard about it, which was that I did technically have another family out there. So I think that's where it all came from in terms of gravitating toward white role models. But that's what I was working, trying to work through in the article. And I think one of the things that got a little bit tricky in the article was that I touched on adoption, but and Jenny picked up on it, thankfully, (laughs) um, because it's a really key part of my story. But I think a lot of readers not necessarily missed it, but they, they viewed the article in as with just that as a tiny piece and instead saw like the societal, well, this girl chose to try to be white. Mm-hmm. And yeah. she looked in the mirror every day and saw someone who wasn't and then went outside and tried to pretend that she was. And that's, I feel like anyone who's having identity issues has a story and it's worth get, learning that story because I think it so often comes from a place that's not just outwardly trying to be racist or prejudiced or anti-something right. or But my story, I think, is very much includes my adoption in terms of the lifestyle I went on to live, the communities I went on to immerse myself in. But I think I owe it to my parents to say that they tried so hard to get me to expand and broaden my horizons in terms of role models and friends and connections. And I did. I have plenty of friends who are Black and who are biracial. And that's more on an individual level versus immersing myself in communities. When it came to communities, I think my entire life, I can say that wherever I was in whatever chapter, I, the com- this, my central community was mostly white. And I think that goes back to where how it all started. And I think it's a difference between you're not rejecting your heritage. You were saying, I want to feel connected and belonging with my parents. And I have a, yes. like you felt that mm-hmm. sense of loyalty and appreciation and love for them. And you're like, this is where I want to belong. This is where I feel like I belong. And so it's not about I'm rejecting them. It's about belonging here. Yeah. And I think and this is where the adoption piece plays uh, a huge role. And that I can understand why one person might have read this piece. And we'll talk about the title of the piece in a minute. But (laughs) we, we can understand I can understand why people would walk away and focus on her not embracing her blackness or not recognizing that she has this other community that she is naturally supposed to be a part of, whatever. I think what was missing for those people was not understanding the adoption experience. And the adoption experience is that even though you are loved and cared for and not wanting for anything and have a community and have, but there's, there is a layer that is there that you are still as, and as a child, because you can't comprehend it, you can't articulate it, you can't express it that you're afraid of what's going to happen if I don't fit in, will they give me back? And I think it's that whole, I was rejected. Yeah, it's the rejection piece, but it's also like you feel guilty for thinking, at least this was for me, like you feel guilty about thinking that they're, 
might be like just having those fantasies and having that imagination and having that like there's a layer of guilt because you are loved and cared for. So why should you want for anything more? And you have people all the time telling you how lucky you are. And you have people that are saying like, aren't you so fortunate that you were adopted into this family? And, did it? and like, you're so lucky because those other kids that don't get that. And it's stop. That's not my responsibility to own. And I don't even have that layer of the different skin color. But that's it's not my responsibility to own you feeling comfortable with me being adopted and not wanting to talk about the fact that I sometimes had feelings that were totally normal and natural mm -hmm. about do I belong or do I not belong? And what is this? This is my experience. And one of the things that I think is really important about what Leah was saying was that her experience is her experience. Nobody's going to take that away as hard as they're trying. And people that are saying, oh, you're racist, blah, blah, that's bullshit. <laughs> like I call flat out bullshit. This is her journey. This is her life and her story. And I'm going to get off my soapbox now. Wellforce, offering business consulting and IT solutions for your hybrid workforce. Do you need business process evaluations and solutions to streamline your workflows? A technology assessment, including security and managed services to optimize performance, or solutions to create a seamless hybrid workplace experience. If that's you, Wellforce has a growing team of affiliates to support your organization's move to hybrid. Visit wellforce.ai today. I have a question for you, Leah. You said that for you, the ghost kingdom was like the thought of that is scary. What is scary about that for you? Well, I think it was that I'm trying to think of it from my childhood eyes, because that's really when I was most scared of it. But it was that I just I thought the more I acknowledge that I technically did have another family, at least biologically, and that I wasn't my parents biological, the more I thought about any of that the more I felt like I risked getting disconnected to the parents I did mm -hmm. have. Parents of adopted kids, I think, can really you know, have a difficult, find themselves in a difficult place because all they were trying to do was love a child and, and start a family. And that's what my parents did. And yet the reality is it's, it's a lot to psychologically process for everyone. So you know, this had nothing to do with the way my parents raised me or what they told me or didn't tell me anything like that. It's more just I was a young kid trying to process and everyone word travels, especially when you look so different. But even when you don't, when kids learn you're adopted, the questions are like, where's your real parents? What happened to your real parents? What are your real parents? Do you have any real brothers and sisters? And the more I, I just I thought that if I acknowledged that I had others out there, then that realness of my parents might actually start to erode. Mm -hmm. Even though my parents never indicated anything like that. They encouraged me to ask questions and to they encourage my siblings to ask questions. And I just was so reluctant to it because I was worried that the more I brought this other reality to life, the more it would drive a wedge between the one that I had, which was my parents and siblings, because I'd be acknowledging something that was. Yeah. Relevant. So here's your PSA. I got to give this. Do not ever ask an adoptee about their real family. And okay. I think it's a difference of what she's talking about. Of As an adult, you realize that's an irrational fear. As a child, it's completely rational. Mm hmm. Yeah, it just it didn't. Yeah, it because was as a child, the one thing you need and even as adults, but like most significantly as a child, you need that sense of connection and belonging and security. Of, yeah, mm -hmm. that sense of security of these are the people who love me and are taking care of me and going to keep me safe and going to feed mm -hmm. me. And, and like I am safe here. And so anything that would threaten that and even an imaginary family or the ghost kingdom that could threaten that, that to a child is a real rational fear, a life and death fear. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So let's equip people because now we've said do not say the word real. Let's <laughs> equip them with the appropriate tools of we use phrases like biological birth. parents, birth parents, birth siblings, biological siblings, mm-hmm. but not real because the opposite of real then means fake. And right. so- that's thinking as a kid because you know when you're five or six or ten it's like when it's concrete yeah so yeah 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 so biological birth i don't even i don't even think it needs to be explained farther than that like those sperm donors genetically linked i like like, we only need to give them those two i don't know (laughs) i feel like sperm donor going the other direction there's a pendulum (laughs) somewhere yeah so let's touch base real quick because um one of the the things that really struck me when lee and i spoke the first time was she told me about how it got picked up by how the the article got picked up from medium to huff post and what they do when you get an article that gets picked up by a post. Let's just go there because that's part of the story that then like drove. Anyway, so yeah, so please (laughs) share that experience with us, please. So I guess the most important thing for everyone to remember here is that I am a very unemerging writer is what I've heard it called in the writing space, meaning I don't know what I'm doing. That's what that means. (laughs) (laughs) What I like, what I was, what I wanted to do first was write. What I like to do is write and I like to process through writing and I'm I'm not a good public speaker. I've always been better with the pen and paper. So that's what I wanted to do initially. And I just kept it private for so long. And then I started thinking, what if I shared? Because I love reading. I especially love reading personal essays that sort of bring other people and their things that they're struggling with and processing to life. I think that's cool. I love reading things where I'm like, oh my God, I thought I was the only person. I feel like when I can hit that level of connection, this is awesome. Yeah, humans are awesome. Yes. So then, so once I got, I, I was like, you know what, let me try to share in the name of doing that. So that's when I started sharing on Medium and Medium. It's like an online writing community that's it's getting very popular, but it's a little bit in a vacuum in that it's Medium users and you have a Medium profile. And while some writing can be shared with the general public, it's uh, a lot of the design is to connect a Medium community. And that's not to say I didn't encounter pushback and feedback, tough feedback on some of the stuff I was writing about, because when you write about race, it's inherently like sensitive. But it was a little bit of a different world when I then distributed my writing on a much more widespread scale through HuffPost, because then you're just talking about like everyone. When I first heard that HuffPost wanted to publish one of my pieces, I was of course flattered and I'm very type A and I have always been a little bit of a gold star chaser. And so I thought HuffPost, gosh, if I could get published in HuffPost, that's, that would be amazing. What would that do to my name? And if I've been working really hard on a memoir, if I ever wanted to try to get that published on a broader scale, how cool to say that I got published in HuffPost. But what I forgot in all this, or I guess didn't even realize is that big publications like that also have an interest in getting clicks Mm -hmm. and they don't really care if the clicks lead to positive or negative feedback. In fact, the more of each, the better, because then your article is getting generating controversy, therefore more clicks. And so I lost control of the story, including very relevantly the headline, the piece. At, for, I'm going to drive traffic now to, the, to this piece again after it got a lot. <laughs> the piece is titled, I spent 35 years trying to convince the world and myself that I was white. And then the subtitle says, I am half black, but I was hell bent on being seen as fully white. So neither of those things were words that I used ever 
originally, they were the editor's suggestions. Now, to be fair to the editor, he gave me sign-off rights. Mm -hmm. But I was so naive and so emerging (laughs) that Mm -hmm. I was like, oh my gosh, he knows best. He's the editor of the HuffPost personal and he wants my piece and I'm not in any position to quibble with what he thinks is best for my piece. And then truly, I, I think on another level, some of the stuff I was saying in the article fit that. I just didn't think through that most people when they read aren't going to sit there and spend a long time trying to process what sort of complex factors are going into this. So the article took off and there it was out there for the world to see me as someone who tried to convince other people that I was white <laughs> because that's what the headline said. I mean, that's why I clicked on it. Like it showed up in my Elvin, and I was um, like, I'm going to click that because <laughs> I'm interested in that. I want to know what that's about. <laughs> I'm hell bent on being seen as half black, but I was hell bent on being seen as fully white. And so here, 40 minutes into our conversation, I think you guys have been, you, you've been willing to go deep enough where we, I feel, come to a shared understanding that none of this was ever me trying to strategize or, or lie. Mm-hmm. It was all starting with, I want to fit in. I want to fit in with the community that, with the role models and the parents that I've always, you know, wanted to fit in with because it's my family. And then the communities that I went on to be raised in, I want to feel accepted. I, the power of acceptance is real. And when I look in the mirror and see someone that doesn't exactly match what's immediately around me, that's scary. And I don't want to draw attention to that, those differences because that, who knows, if you don't fit in, where, what are you left mm-hmm. with. Um, mm-hmm. So that's where it all started. And yet when someone reads an article that says, here's this girl who's half black trying to be white, they, there are other now pretty public figures out there who have done things like this, who have completely lied, for lack of a better word, about their biological identities and for whatever reason. And I was now in that category of people who just tried to live this fake life Mm-hmm. And even some of the photos in the article were completely taken out of context by readers, as I learned in the comments, which I thought that <laughs> I, I think I made the mistake too. of you lose control of your photos when you publish something. Mm-hmm. And I used photos that showed me when I would have my hair like completely stick straight with the keratin treatment and blowouts and stuff like that. And people commented on those photos saying, yeah, she looks white. Like she got herself to pretty much look white. And it just fed into the story of here's a woman who truly tried to convince others that she was a white person, that she lived. And my story actually got picked up by a talk show. And I was so like chicken with my head cut off at that time. Mm-hmm. She was so was, emerging. I was so emerging. <laughs> I thought, okay, here's a chance to try to make things right with mm-hmm. with story. Because if a talk show wants to talk to me about this story, I can explain but that's not what a talk show. Not what a talk show wants to do. They, they edit. <laughs> but you, you guys, I think are are helping me feel like people actually want. You guys are give people the opportunity to explain. They mm-hmm. want it to sensationalize even more. Than they the wanted soundbite. Ask questions on that talk show, which I I did go on, and it was a mess. And I was asked questions like, "What made you decide to live your life as white? What did you tell people when they asked, what are you?'" expecting me to answer that I said white. <laughs> and it's just, I was realizing like, this story has just- I'm a, be- I'm a badger. Right, what, like, just, what are you? you? <laughs> I just, I'm a woolly mammoth. That's why my hair is curly. Like, what? I totally lost control of the story. And 
it became a sensationalized thing where this black girl tried to pass as white, literally tried to tell people she was white. And what does that say about how racist she is against herself? And it was really painful because all I had wanted to do at the beginning was share the story that I've been working so hard to process, mm. unfortunately. And I learned all these things, unfortunately. Like, I was telling my husband I should never have done any of this. And he said, well, how would you ever have learned? Yeah, <laughs> so right. I started learning trial by fire, but I brought my kids into it in the sense that I mentioned that I have two sons and they both look like literally I say night and day because one looks white and one looks brown. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, seriously, like my husband is uh, white and he's of Swedish descent. Skin no, yeah, her older son is literally <laughs> like a toe-headed, blue-eyed beauty. Toe-headed, <laughs> he could be... He could go to school in Sweden and look exactly yes. like, he would look more Swedish than any of <laughs> he. It's just insane. Genetics are so insane. And then my younger son is brown skinned, like darker shade than me somehow, brown eyed. And recently his hair started turning a little bit golden blonde, which is interesting. But at the time I wrote this, he didn't even have any hair. So I, I had a white looking son and a brown son. And I yeah. brought that into the article. And I think a lot of readers really took issue, a lot of especially readers of color took issue with the fact that I was maybe going to lie for my whole life about being white mm -hmm. until I had my son who looked brown. And now and, and that's what I wrote in the article, I said that I wanted to be honest for the sake of being honest with my kids. But it made me take a step back after this was all out there and think, I think I need to be a little bit more honest with myself and everyone about where this all originated, and go back to the sort of adoption piece. Mm -hmm. Even though in my mind, it was like adoption here, race here, different buckets. It's so intertwined for me yes. mm. so that to try to separate and try to talk more broadly about societal factors of white supremacy and white dominance. That's an important piece of a lot of people's stories. And to some extent, it's part of mine. But, but really, I can't lose sight of the fact that my story is very intertwined with my roots of being adopted, wanting well, a sense of belonging. So I think it's like adoption, racism, and the connective tissue is connection and belonging. Mm -hmm. And family. Mm -hmm. And yeah. And yeah. Well, I think um, there's another component because when you were talking, I saw a couple of things that connected that I think are pretty interesting. One, you guys started talking about living in DC and over politicizing everything and how that's so wearing on you. Mm -hmm. And then you write an article about you trying to express your story and I grappling with identity all of us do in various ways mm -hmm. and then people wanted to instantly try to figure out how to put you in a politicized bucket mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so that they could express their opinion about something that had nothing to do with what you were talking about it'd be like a conversation like what does that have to do with anything mm -hmm. like like when and we do that so often and i feel like the other component that you said that i thought was really right on is that human nature humans are awesome but when we get in the political realm, we typically like to go to the base worse. And we like to vilify. We like it to be and, all or nothing, black or white, very yeah. concrete. Nobody wants to have a complex conversations. So. But yeah, and I'm guilty of that too. Even though I said I've been away from the DC politics um, scene for 10 plus years. That's true. But at the same time, I think I bought into the sensationalizing. Let me yeah. give, let's get me a headline. Let's get me a box, so to speak, of where I yeah. can sit yeah. and be part of yeah. you know, a movement. And I should say, I got a lot of support for this article too. I got a lot of negative feedback, but I also got a lot of positive feedback. I had people reaching out to me all, on all kinds of social media saying, thank you for me for the article. And that was amazing. But even that felt a little bit like, am I the right person? Are you thanking me for what is really true to my story? Or did my story send a message that 
maybe I think I've just lost control of my personal story mm-hmm. of your trying oh, yeah. to come up with something that fits some kind of national dialogue. And I don't feel like I'm in a position to drive national dialogue right now. I do want to tell my story, though, from the sort of connect with humans perspective. And my story does have a race component. And there might be room for some sort of social commentary on race relations. But for me, personally, the the bigger story starts, it's a lot softer and more complex, but it's about love and belonging and family and adoption. She just answered my next question because my next question was like, we're giving you the platform to take your control back. How would you describe what your mission is? And she just totally like... Well, and what I want to make sure we get into before we have to get off, because I think it's so important, is what you experienced is what keeps a lot of people silent and from being vulnerable, right? That is people's fear of if I'm vulnerable and if I'm visible, then what I say like will literally, be I'm going to have a dumpster fire dumped on my head, right? <laughs> what I the message that I say, my heart's intention, my truth will be twisted, misconstrued, misunderstood, mm-hmm. and then I'm going to be vilified or attacked. I'm and gonna then I'm going to constantly being comments. on the defensive, and I'm going to have right. to explain myself over and, and over so again. I'll just be quiet instead. We're just like we started this, the whole reason you like our show is because of the level of vulnerability. But there is such, that is what, like, your experience is what keeps people afraid and saying, I'm not going to put myself out there that way because what if that happens to me? Mm -hmm. So what would you say to those people, Leah? Because we are in agreement, like, we are shared values of, no, it's important to speak up and share your truth and, and go and be vulnerable. And so since you've had that experience... What would you say to people in order to encourage them to continue uh, to show up and be vulnerable? I would say that the most important, I've learned that it's such a, even the vulnerable parts, even the uncomfortable parts, even the parts where you're finding that your story or your name got taken, misinterpreted or twisted in a way you didn't see coming. I've learned so much from that. Like I've learned, it's been, gosh, I've learned so much over the past few months. I can't believe it's only been a few months, but this did happen back in like January, February with HuffPost and the talk show. I have learned so much after that, that I'm not sure I ever would have learned or been able to process in such a meaningful way about my very own story because of having to experience that discomfort and have to take a second and third and fourth and hard look at what I'm trying to do, what I'm trying to say and what my story even is. This identity journey has taken a turn that I ultimately really like and appreciate, but I'm not sure I ever would have gotten there had I not had to come face to face with the discomfort of having things misconstrued. Because I was, if you don't share, you're in your own bubble. You're like, yep. mm-hmm. you and your computer can only learn so much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but once you share with other people, you get feedback that says, okay, I hit that was true. You get feedback that you look in the mirror and you're like, oh my gosh, what did I do? And then you take that and move on to the next chapter with lots of new learning. And so the discomfort, I think, of that has ultimately made me more in tune with myself, my story, and my identity, even though I had to go through a lot of very vulnerable moments with things that are deeply personal to me out there. I think ultimately I've come to a stronger sense of identity. And I've been writing about that. And I'm still very excited about a memoir that I've been working on. It just looks totally different than it did a year ago. But I think it looks better. It's not in it's not close to being done or anything. I'm grateful to that. Yes, I love that. Mm -hmm. I love that. I was like, that's important. Yeah. 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 When people are listening, that would have been like, well, see, that's why I'm never putting myself out there. And so we needed her to say that. So people Mm -hmm. know 
she's glad she did it. She realizes that she's it's better because of it. Mm -hmm. It was this amazing opportunity where she got to have an understanding of her identity in ways she would have never been able to have Mm -hmm. without that. So thank you for that, Leah. Yeah, that's why there's the cliche of you walk through shit to come out smelling like roses, right? Like you have to, you have to experience. And there's probably a more eloquent way. I'm like, I've put never that. heard that. You've never before. heard that. My life. Oh my god! I don't even think that would work, Jenny. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, the but I like it through, anyway. I like it. I get it. You come out smelling like roses. It's, listen, it's the fertilizer, Joe. The fertilizer. I get it. I get it. Yeah, just, <laughs> it's missing a couple steps. There's no seeds there's, or anything. So. <laughs> If you're out there and you don't understand how farming works, please don't rub yourself <laughs> thinking that you're going to turn it. All right. Oh my I'll God. Call, that's why you were looking at me. I was like, they probably could have said it more eloquently then. That's um, so funny. But it's, you have to go through, you have to know what the, the dumpster fire feels like to know what it is that the impact that you're going to have moving forward. Like you have to have had that experience so you understand that being vulnerable doesn't always suck. That it doesn't, that putting yourself out there and the impact that no, you're going to have sucks. in the ripple effect. You just embrace the suck because <laughs> the aftermath is going to be yeah. awesome. It's going to be better, Leah said. The aftermath is going to be better. Mm-hmm. How do people find you on Medium and on your other channels? It's Leah Olson. Oh gosh, I don't know. I don't have a website or anything, but yeah, just my... We'll find Leah Olson. We'll link it in the, in the show notes. But yeah, so find Leah Olson on Medium. When I Google Leah Olson, it immediately says, husband attorney instagram there you go <laughs> I'm, google, I'm googleable now gosh you are you're findable and so is your hubby everybody's oh my god who's her husband that's why yeah. he's second on the list yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny yeah so we'll put your medium link in the in the show notes thank you so much for being here and we and always speaking your truth and yeah. sharing your story even when it's scary and when it's twisted around mm-hmm. of continuing to show yeah. up. Connect with us at girlswhodostuff.com. Subscribe to our email list for fun announcements and leave us a review. It helps other people find our stuff. We would be so grateful to you for taking those actions so we can get this out into the world and change more lives. I am Jenny Midgley. I am Sarah Madras. And, and you, you do, do you, boo. boo. We love making this stuff for you. You can help us out by subscribing to this podcast and follow us on social media. 